cultures, there were strictly adhered to traditions related to animal welfare. Many of these traditions were practical in the sense that they helped local ecologies maintain a decent balance most of the time, even though the cultures that adhered to them typically also hunted the animals to which these traditions applied. So animals might be respected and even revered But that respect and reverence was also generally associated with the measured or periodic culling of members of these species. Back in the early 13th century, for instance, the Mongolian Empire under Genghis Khan had a tradition that became a law that disallowed the hunting of most game species during mating season which was sometimes justified in more spiritual terms, but which had the practical effect of ensuring the propagation and thus the perpetuation of that species, which in turn ensured there would always be more of that species to hunt without that hunting, putting said species at risk of endangerment or extinction. The same general concept was developed by many Native American groups, countless cultures throughout pre-colonial Africa, and many other groups throughout the rest of the world, though often, once these groups either scaled up sufficiently or encountered survival-related pressures from their environments or from other groups of humans, some or all of these traditions went out the window, and the most valuable game species used as food or for raw materials used for shelter or clothing or whatever else, they would be relatively quickly hunted to extinction or near extinction. In the European world, which at the time, because of how printing and distribution worked, was the collection of cultures whose thoughts were most widely disseminated, A book called A Dissertation on the Duty of Mercy and Sin of Cruelty to Brute Animals was written and published by a member of the Church of England clergy named Humphrey Pramatt, and by some estimates this was the, or at the very least, a foundational document of the modern animal rights movement. In this book, Pramatt argued that animals were created by God, and thus should be treated as humanely as possible. He claimed that cruelty to animals was wicked and atheistic, a denial of God and his will, basically. He did say, as was the case with members of many other cultures that have promoted, by various means, the concept of moderation in hunting and respect for the animals killed in this way, that killing animals for food was okay and not evil. He just thought that unnecessary suffering for these animals was abominable. He himself ate meat, and he was mostly arguing that we should take better care of the animals from which the meat that we consume is derived. This general concept that animals should not suffer unnecessarily in order for us to eat their meat spread around Europe in particular throughout the early 19th century, and several loose, scattered regulations and organizations 
were consolidated into more formal, official government bodies and laws by the early 1900s, though even fundamental protections for animals, including those that did little, except establish that maybe animals, perhaps, should not be more or less tortured before they're processed for meat, wouldn't arrive in United States federal law until after World War II, though several individual states did have something related to this on their legal books decades earlier. Books on this subject, including Animal Machines by Ruth Harrison, published in 1964, and the 1906 novel by Upton Sinclair, The Jungle, made the average person more aware of how meat arrived on their dinner table, in a world that was increasingly more removed from this process, in large part because of the industrialization of the multifaceted meat industry. That industrialization beneficial in many ways because of how it made such food more accessible and affordable to more people, but somewhat less so because of how it, according to these and similar works, dehumanized those who worked in the factories and warehouses where animals were processed for their meat, over-processed meat to make it more shelf-stable and inexpensive to produce and distribute, but at the same time less healthful for those who consumed it, and because of how the animals involved were treated, including some cases where animals from birth to death were kept in cages no larger than their bodies, leaving them unable to do anything except eat and defecate and grow and die. If you assume that animals are essentially unthinking automatons that, like clockwork objects, are basically born, eat, defecate, and die anyway, this state of affairs is perhaps not the end of the world to you. And for much of human history, although those aforementioned often spiritual traditions helped us keep things in balance and respect even the animals that we killed for their meat, we didn't really have much reason to question that broad assertion. Some traditions did imply that animals were creatures sort of like us, blessed or cursed with sophisticated cognition and self-awareness, and that's why killing them was considered to be such a big deal and such a sacred thing. It was framed through these ideological lenses as being a case where these animals were sacrificing themselves for us, and that sacredness helped maintain the balance of the relevant ecosystems because there are only so many sacrifices you can expect sentient creatures to make on our behalf. But many other groups, initially or eventually, came to legally and or socially perceive animals as being something else, something inherently less than, because we were society builders and they were species that were not capable of the same far from equals, and in many cases maybe even not worthy of concern or fundamental consideration, any more than a rock or a log might be. What I'd like to talk about today is a slow-building collection of data that may result in questions about some of those assumptions and what the implications of these findings could someday be. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. 
The article I'd like to start with today comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled, Octopuses and Lobsters Have Feelings. Include them in Sentience Bill. Urge MPs. There is an organization in the United Kingdom called the Conservative Animal Welfare Foundation, or CAWF, that is made up of conservative politicians who support a variety of primarily meat, but also related food and other animal-derived product laws that would broadly limit or end the suffering experienced by the animals that are involved in these systems. Though in truth, I should probably say that they are focused on ending the perceived suffering of those animals, because the science on this subject is not definitive, despite the great many feelings that many of us have on this issue. More specifically, many of us feel that animals, in some fashion at least, must also feel in a similar way that we do. And though we cannot say this for certain quite yet, or numerically explain the differences in how various animals cognate, it just seems obvious from what we can perceive through our interactions with such animals that there's something conscious going on there. This is not a sense that everyone shares, though, and folks in meat and other animal-derived product industries in particular find this concept to be, in some cases, laughable, and in other cases merely inconvenient. Many of their most popular counter-arguments revolve around the nutritional necessity of meat in many parts of the world, and there is reason to take those arguments seriously due to a lack of suitable nutritional replacements in many regions still today. Nutritional scarcity, in other words, makes it a lot more convenient to assume that the consciousness some of us believe that we perceive in animals is just an illusion. It is perceptual only. Similar to when we chat online with a seemingly convincingly human, but actually just clockwork AI-based chatbot, we can perceive humanity or thought or consciousness or sentience in many things. That's part of our nature. That is how this particular argument goes. A new study entitled Behavioral and Neurophysiological Evidence Suggests Effective Pain Experience in Octopus, though, suggests that octopuses in particular seem to have a similar pain reception and pain reaction set up as mammals, including mice, which is where the majority of mammalian research tends to focus for practical reasons. Despite the fact that these different animals arrive at those pain response outcomes in different ways, octopuses react to pain and find it unpleasant. They suffer from it, even though they don't have the exact same biological components and biological component arrangement as mice and humans and other mammals. Their pain and response to pain and measurable feelings about that pain and that response result in similar outcomes, even if they arrived at that pain-related setup via different evolutionary paths. That is what this study says, basically. And this was determined by applying lab-based 
pain behavior measuring techniques typically used with mice, which involves tracking neural activity, but also measuring behavioral changes in the subjects that have recently experienced pain in order to ascertain their likely emotional or cognitive, if you prefer, state. In other words, after experiencing pain, mammals like mice and humans tend to have measurably different neurological makeups, which manifest as a changed emotional state. We are a little bit off, typically, and maybe uncomfortable, uncertain, and worried about the potential for another painful experience. We are not ourselves in many different measurable ways. Spontaneous, irregular, and thus uncertain and unpredictable pain, in particular, can throw us off our usual game. And this tweak to the mammalian affective state, which is a fancy way of saying how we seem to be doing, that seemingness, at least partially influenced by our internal chemical proportions, was detected in octopuses who were subjected to the same pain protocols as mammals that undergo such experiments. To be clear then, while we still lack the ability to say for certain that octopuses or any other animal, including humans, despite our inability to say that any of these animals are conscious or sentient, much less conscious or sentient in a way that we would recognize as being the same as human consciousness or sentience, a way that is similar to whatever it is that makes us us, Despite our inability to say that, we do have some pretty compelling evidence that octopuses, at least, and by association, perhaps other types of cephalopods, with similar neurological and bodily arrangements, may respond to pain in the same or close to the same way that we do. And this revelation, by some estimates, means that we should maybe adjust our practical understanding of these animals, including, potentially, changing what sorts of painful circumstances we expose them to, how we care for them, but also how and if they are captured and processed and consumed. One thing worth bringing up Leading into this larger discussion, I think, is the fact that animals, most especially mice and rats, because of how similar their biological makeups are to the same on humans, are regularly, for lack of a better term, tortured to advance science. There are species of mice that have been engineered to very quickly develop deadly and probably quite painful cancers so that we, humans, can test cancer treatments on them, which may then someday go on to benefit human cancer patients. And rodents in labs, even with all of the regulations we have in place to try to moderate their unnecessary suffering, still suffer quite a lot because of the inevitability of suffering when it comes to some types of experimentation. And that same process was carried over to octopuses in this case. The test subjects were injected with acid, some of them receiving an analgesic to ameliorate the pain shortly after, and some not. This was done in order to determine their response to that type of painful stimulus and to see how their affect changed and whether they would avoid areas where pain was experienced in the past and potentially favor areas where they received relief from that pain. 
You could argue that this kind of torment is necessary for the evolution of biological science, and I think with our current options, that's hard to argue with. But at the same time, you could also perceive this as being hypocritical, or part of the same system that allows animals to be grown and tortured and processed for their meat. So while such studies do seem to increase our understanding of the creatures with which we share our planet, and in a lot of cases ourselves as well, they're also not without cost. And the more we learn about pain responses and neurological setups that differ from our own, the more this might become an issue central to some animal rights groups' time and attention, which it already is for many of them today, but also of similar groups set up by political organizations with often more focused causes. That seems to be what's happening here. Many animal rights groups have already fought to get octopuses and other cephalopods off menus and out of cages, and to prevent their capture by fishing vessels that then either sell them as food or pets, or leave them stuck in those nets to die at sea. But now, this more political version of the same sort of group is recalibrating their causes to account for these findings, to basically rally support behind the concept that the approximately 420 million cephalopods and crustaceans that UK fishing vessels alone pull in each year should be treated better, and that better treatment should be formalized into law. A report submitted by conservative UK politicians who are part of the CAWF said this on the matter, quote, Common arguments against crustacean and cephalopod sentience focus on distinctions between these animals' anatomy and human anatomy, such as that they process information outside the brain, e.g. in ganglions. However, this anthropocentric view fails to capture what it means for an animal to be sentient, Crustaceans and cephalopods undoubtedly experience the world in extremely different ways to ourselves. What matters, though, is whether that experience entails conscious experience of pleasure and pain. We believe that the evidence is sufficient to show that these animals do experience pleasure and pain. End quote. This report argued that some invertebrate animals, like octopuses, should be included in a new piece of legislation working its way through the UK political system that says, basically, animals that are thought to be sentient should be afforded certain protections. In similar laws in other countries, including Australia, Norway, and Sweden, these protections don't mean we do not capture and eat these animals. But it does typically mean that they are taken better care of throughout the course of that process in an effort to reduce the possibility of suffering for the creature in question. The UK Department for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs has said, after receiving this report, that they will be seriously considering it and have commissioned an independent external review of the scientific evidence currently available to determine whether octopus, cuttlefish, and squid, all of which are cephalopods, should be included in the final version of the legislation. All of which is very interesting, in part because of its potential political implications. This may point at impending moves by parties all around the world to make animal welfare a more fundamental component of their party's platform, depending on how well or not well it goes over with the UK public. 
but also because of what it might mean for the many industries that are reliant on cultivating and culling animal populations for their very existence. It is conceivable that part of why this new push is happening now is because of a more widespread public awareness of animals, including those we wouldn't typically be exposed to in our everyday lives, like octopuses. And this awareness is translating into more casual concern for such animals, which then could translate into more political action on their behalf. We see a documentary in which an octopus seems to be doing quite human things, and that changes our opinion about octopuses, and maybe even influences our personal dining habits in the future, alongside our potential voting habits. It could be, though, that part of why this type of legislation is becoming thinkable now, whereas it seemed to be much less so many years ago, when we already had a decent sense of what was happening to these animals, even if not as much data, and certainly not enough to say for certain, non-anecdotally, that they probably weren't mindless machines that produced meat, but because of where we are now, we can allow ourselves to consider expanding our circles of empathy to include more species. Because we are now at a point, technologically, where we can decently well and increasingly inexpensively replace the nutritional content that meat has traditionally provided us in our diets. Said another way, it may be that we could have decided not to eat some species earlier, based on what we already knew. But on a practical level, we might not have been able to sustain such ethical stands, even if we felt bad about what we were doing. Some people, in some places around the world, have been able to, casually or in some cases at great expense, replace the nutritional content contained in meat. But that has not been an option for everyone. Today, though, with the advent of meat substitutes, and the widespread distribution of fortified foods, we are in a much better position to consider such things, and then, potentially, to act upon those considerations. This is especially true as we enter a period in which cell-based meat, which is basically real meat produced in a lab or factory or assembly line, cell by cell, rather than on an animal, We've entered a period in which that has become a practical reality on scale, rather than just a theoretical what-if. One such lab-grown meat factory that is operating in Israel is currently, as of July 2021, producing the equivalent of about 5,000 hamburger patties a day at their current startup scale. This capacity, globally, is expected to grow very fast, and to become very large in the coming years, as today's lab-grown meat is already a lot more efficient than traditional meat-making methods. Using these approaches, they are able to produce that quantity of meat about 20 times faster than their animal-grown predecessor approaches, but they're also more sustainable, requiring 96% less freshwater resources, 99% less land, and they produce 80% fewer greenhouse gases than what typical livestock processing would require to produce the same amount of beef. So there are already compelling monetary and environmental cost benefits to using such animal-free meat production alternatives, which may make it easier to take a stand 
on animal welfare than would have been the case before such alternatives were available and practical. You could have said you believed in such things a decade ago, but replacements would have been a lot trickier and more expensive to come by, and thus not accessible by everyone, especially if we are thinking beyond the wealthy world. And lab-grown alternatives have benefits that non-meat protein alternatives do not, in that some cultures and individuals have deeply felt traditions and preferences, ethical and otherwise, related to consuming meat, for which lab-grown alternatives could conceivably then operate as a replacement. In those situations where plant-based or other alternatives might not serve for whatever reason, our existing plant-based alternatives do already fill these types of protein gaps for plenty of people worldwide. And there's a good chance that as these alternatives become more popular and increasingly available and tasty and thus less scary to those who are unfamiliar with them, they too will enable more people to practically expand their circle of empathy to include beings beyond just humans or bare minimum to consider doing so. All of which is somewhat speculative as we are still at the beginning of some of these processes and technologies and trends, even though the match for this potentially now kindling fire was sparked generations ago. There have long been traditions about how to manage animal resources and how to interact with animals in a balanced way, but now we're being faced with the possibility that our ethics surrounding this matter might be out of step with the biological reality of the situation. Which is good to know this is valuable research and research data to have conducted and to now have on our hands, but it could be a tough pill to swallow for many of us, because the implication is that we have, potentially, been torturing and harvesting and eradicating species that potentially feel and experience things in a similar way to us, even if in a slightly different biological fashion. And we've been doing this ever since we've existed as a species. And though it's more possible now to make lifestyle changes that account for this uncertainty, it's an open question how things could be changed more fundamentally to account for that shift in philosophical and scientific perspective. Not to mention how we might deal with the potential collective psychological consequences of coming to believe that we've been causing so much harm and so much pain for so long. Also speculative, of course, is that any of this will lead to change of any kind. There's a very good chance that this bit of data will be slowly incorporated into the larger body of scientific knowledge that already tells us many of the same things, but in different ways and about different species. We already have, generally at least, a more generous circle of empathy when it comes to other mammals. And yet, we still use rodents, which are mammals, in our scientific experiments. And we create new species of them that are more or less born to suffer and die so that we might forward our knowledge about the world. We also continue to eat many, many mammals and process them on scale using methods that are similar to those used back in the days of industrial meat production and the beginning of modern animal welfare writing. We are good at ignoring ethical inconsistencies wherever they exist, when it is practical for us to do so. So even if this represents a shift amongst some as a result of this new knowledge, it is still an open question as to whether that shift and that knowledge will inform anything 
on a larger and more impactful scale. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding by Daniel Lieberman. I was pleasantly surprised to find that unlike many books of this genre or subgenre, this was not a book that basically just said everything that you know about exercise is wrong. It actually goes through and finds some fairly counterintuitive points that might not be obvious to many of us. But it also describes why some things that are obviously good for us and things that we all know that we should be doing more are good for us, why we respond to those things in the way that we do, and how evolutionarily we've come to be as we are in the sense that we respond to exercise in the way that we do today as modern humans. So if you're looking for some explanations as to what you might do better to stay healthy and exercise, there are some gems, some nuggets of wisdom in this book, but it was actually more valuable to me as a deeper dive, a contextual understanding of the general concept of exercise. So whether or not you're looking for any tactical advice, this book may end up being a valuable read for you. Now, if any of that sounds interesting, consider picking up a copy of Exercised by Daniel Lieberman. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, wherever you get your podcasts or at brainlenses.com. You can sign up to receive an email each day from me every morning summarizing the news at onesentencenews.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram and most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.